the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Lee Johnson. And this week, we are talking about ChatGPT, or as I like to call it, the machine. <laughs> and before we get started, let's get everyone's drink orders and their rants or raves. So, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about this week? I'm going to have one of my standbys, a Manhattan made with rye, please. And this week, I have a rant embedded within a rave. And my rave is about a recent episode of John Oliver's Last Week Tonight. In which he discussed my favorite politician, Governor Ron DeSantis. (laughs) And I thought it was an excellent takedown of Ron DeSantis and extremely funny. So I'm raving about John Oliver's Last Week Tonight. So, Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Uh, I'm just going to have a Fireball and Diet Coke this week, and I'm ranting about bad friends. And you know what? Like, I'm not going to elaborate on this, but you know who you are. (laughs) Jason, what about you? What are you ranting or raving about this week? Well, first, I'm going to have a margarita with as much salt as possible, and I'm going to rave about De La Soul. And the reason for that is, is that for those of you who know, and you should know, for a long time, De La Soul's first six albums were unavailable on any streaming platform. You could pay a lot of money to get collector's items. They did release them all for free back in 2016, but Mm -hmm. the laptop that I had them on died. Uh, And they recently have released them all, and the first six albums are just amazing. Although, of course, there's a sad part of this story is that this happened to coincide with the death of Trugoy, a.k.a. Dave, a.k.a. Dave Jellicor, one of the central members. So there's a lot of sadness with this as well, but it's just amazing to be able to hear their music again and without having to go to YouTube and try to find who was pirating it most Mm. recently. Yeah, so Lee – Chat GPT. What do you want to talk about? You know, guys, I think if anybody Googled Chat GPT in the last maybe two months, they would either read an essay by somebody on our side of the classroom, namely a professor mm-hmm. who was really worried about cheating, or they would read an essay by an employer who was really worried about all future employees being dumb as a bag of hair. (laughs) Both of those are legitimate concerns, and we need to talk about why ChatGPT underlies those concerns. But I think that there is a ChatGPT panic that is either an overblowing of the capabilities of ChatGPT or a complete misunderstanding of what actually goes on in a classroom. And so today I'd like to talk about A, what ChatGPT actually is and what it can do, B, the ChatGPT panic, and C, whether or not the ChatGPT panic is warranted.
Well, I guess first, and I think it's going to be helpful for everyone, myself included, we need to talk a little bit about what ChatGPT is, what it does, and how it works. So I don't know, Lee, can you help us walk us through some of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a good place to start. So ChatGPT is a application that operates by virtue of an AI model called GPT-3. ChatGPT and GPT-3 are different. GPT-3 is a model. And as I'm guessing everybody can imagine from the three, that it's the third iteration of this model. That's the one thing I understand about this whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But G, P, and T also mean things. So the G in ChatGPT stands for generative, which means that it is capable of producing new content, generating responses, in this case, human-like responses. The P stands for pre-trained, which means that this model was pre-trained on massive amounts of data. Think all of the words on the internet. Like that's what this AI model was trained on to recognize pattern structures in human language that would make it sufficiently capable of predicting what is the most likely next word in this sequence of words? You know, I mean, so what it's giving you is a prediction word by word of what a human-like response would look like. So the P stands for pre-trained. The T stands for transformer. And that's maybe like a little bit more than we want to get into in this episode. So A transformer network is a particular kind of AI architecture, like sometimes it's called a deep learning network. It relies on neural network structures, which are built on a model of the human brain. And so that makes them very good at, among other things, natural language processing. But, you know, that's what the T stands for. So hopefully that gets us into this conversation. That's what chat GPT is. It's an application built on a particular AI model that is a generative pre-trained transformer model. And the chat part is just that I can ask it questions or ask it to do something and it responds to me. So I, I understood the word chat initially <laughs> and the three. <laughs> yeah, chat and three I got. So one of the things that confuses me a little bit about the panic is that it seems to me that the hoopla is placed in the wrong place because in a way that this program can predict the statistically likely next word, given that it's trained on basically the entire internet up until 2020, I think it is. Yeah. That seems slightly unremarkable. The speed seems pretty remarkable, but just predicting the likely outcome doesn't seem to me to be all that exciting or earth shattering. Am I missing something? I mean, at present, comparing what this machine in your pocket can do to the intelligence of a basically 12-year-old child. Does it seem unremarkable? But is intelligence the right word there? I think it is. But like, you know, Noam Chomsky wrote a piece about it a couple days ago that was not about plagiarism. Um, And (laughs) he makes his stresses that when a person 
young child or whatever, constructs a sentence, they are doing something very different than trying to figure out what the next likely word to follow the previous word is. Whatever they're doing to formulate the next word comes from a whole set of what they're observing, how they're navigating the rules of grammar and so on. It is very different than this sort of prediction function. And that's to some extent what I think he would want to call intelligence, that it, it simulates a kind of intelligence. It looks like someone wrote it, but it is operating by a very different model of a kind of statistical probability than whatever model we might want to say governs the next word that I think of to finish this particular sentence right now. So in my view, and obviously there are many different definitions of intelligence, but one for me, really productive definition of intelligence is the capacity to accomplish tasks within a given domain. If we're asking are these large language models like GBT3 capable of accomplishing tasks within a given domain, namely the domain of what we philosophers would call natural language? They are 100% capable of doing that. The other question, which I'm kind of surprised Chomsky doesn't ask in his criticism of the intelligence capacities of ChatGPT, is how do any of us learn language, right? Like it's worth considering that all of us learn language by maybe more or less learning how to predict what the next word in a sentence will be in order to make sense of something that you want to express. So yeah, I'm more than a little bit suspicious of these criticisms of this particular large language model. I think that like Chomsky et al. are trying to show that ChatGBT is not conscious. I'm just not sure that demonstrating that it fails these particular very restricted strictures of how it is that one makes a sentence are convincing to me. I think I'm somewhere in between the position that Jason laid out and the position that Lee, you just laid out, in that one of the things that worries me about an argument that AI is not intelligent is that it takes as the only model of what could count as intelligence, human intelligence. In that understanding, I'm perfectly willing to say that ChatGPT does not exhibit human intelligence. But I'm not so willing to say there's no intelligence there whatsoever in the sense that Lee was sort of pointing out that it is able to produce sentences that seem to be mostly grammatically correct and seem like sentences that a human would say. But the funny thing is they seem that way because they are. Right, that is, right. it's trained on human language. And so here's where I think that the question over whether this is intelligence or not should be shifted slightly. And for me, the question is not whether this is intelligence or not, but whether, and I think Chomsky does get to this, whether this thing, chat GPT, or even the model GPT-3, understands what it's doing. And I think that part of Chomsky's argument is 
it doesn't understand what it's doing, right? It's just going out. It's using very complex statistical algorithms to predict what the next most likely word would be and offering it to you and that it doesn't understand what it's saying, which means it also doesn't know whether what it's saying is true or false. But if I could just get back to what I mentioned in the beginning, which is I feel like there are basically two kinds of panic about ChatGPT. One of them is you guys are overreacting. Like, you know, like this is just another calculator. And the other is this is a mind that especially you guys in higher education should worry about because it's going to enable your students to cheat. I think there are two different worries there. And I think that Chomsky falls on the side of you're all just being duped by what seems like a major advancement in AI, but really isn't. And I think he's one million percent wrong about that. So Lee, why isn't GPT-3 just like fancy, sexy, fast spell check? Because spell check does the same thing. It has a predictive model about, you know, what the next word should be. And it doesn't understand grammar or anything like that. And, you know, I like my spell check. I I hate my grammar check. Grammar checkers do not like academic writing, but I sort of like my spell check. So what's the advance beyond that here? I think that the cheating concern about ChatGPT speaks to the question that you're asking. Like, I mean, if I'm going to be honest, you know how I learned how to spell separate? I only learned how to spell separate because the little red squiggly line (laughs) and spell check just kept reminding me that I'm spelling separate wrong. Right. This is a age old problem in education is that we introduce new technologies. And so far, you know, like the smart calculator, the spell check, like we can expand. JSTOR, Google, the internet, we've always adapted to new technologies for learning. for sure. Mm -hmm. And we've survived so far. So the real question is, why suddenly, as they say in The Wizard of Oz, why is this a horse of a different color? (laughs) And I think that part of it is we just really don't understand how it works. We keep comparing it to a calculator or spell check or whatever, And not really understanding that what makes it significantly different is that it has a capacity for natural language that we can interact with in a manner that seems intersubjective, which was never the case when my spell check corrected my spelling. I mean, as far as an understanding of how it works, Ted Chang wrote this piece for The New Yorker where he said, ChatGPT is a blurry JPEG of the internet or something to that effect. And it helped me understand it, but I think some people point out that he may have been wrong on some points. But he said, part of what makes ChatGPT seem impressive is that it is not lossless. Mm -hmm. He said, if you asked it to write something and it gave you where it found everything, all the bits of text, and showed you the websites, you would look at it and think, oh, this is basically just Google, right? Because it loses and it condenses You know, he compares it to the way in which when you compress a JPEG, the computer will do a kind of interpolation, will figure out like if it's a picture of an apple and not all the pixels are there, but figures an apple, you know, most of the pixels are going to be some variation of red or golden or whatever and figure Mm. out what is the most likely color to be between two spots on the apple. And that's sort of what it's doing. And in some sense, he says that part of what makes it seem impressive is the way that it is able to compress and fill in the gaps. And one of the things I think is very 
interesting and odd about ChatGPT, in my experience of it, is that for a machine, it is bad at things that you'd expect it to be good at and good at things that you'd expect it to be bad at. Mm. Like I asked it to write my biography. It said, Jason Reed is a contemporary philosopher and political theorist born in 1970 in New York City, United States. He received his bachelor's degree from the New School for Social Research and went on to complete his PhD in philosophy at Stony Brook University. All the facts in those two sentences are wrong. (laughs) I was not born in New York City. I did not go to the New School for Social Research. I did not go to Stony Brook. I was born in 1970. That is true. (laughs) Um, So it is sort of two lies and a truth. But it it goes on and it does a pretty good job. It does a better job summarizing the argument of my first book than it does knowing where I was born and where I went to school. And you'd expect a program to know where I was born. Where I went to school thing is an odd thing because that is probably one of the most repeated facts about me on the internet. It shows up in all my little blur bios, you know, SUNY Binghamton. How it got that wrong is kind of surprising. That it knows when I was born is kind of creepy. <laughs> but that it was able to sum up, you know, it says one of his most significant contributions, book of theories, his book, The Micropolitics of Capital, Marx and the Priesthood of the Present, which explores the connection between the history of capitalism and the development of social relations, as well as the role of technology and the state in the reproduction of capitalist social relations. I mean, that's not bad. That's not the blurb on the back of your book? That's not the blurb on the back of my book. That's the surprising thing. But are you surprised, like, given the information out there about you on the internet, are you surprised about that description of you? Like- I mean, as somebody who knows you, I don't know what year you were born in. I might give what you would describe as an inaccurate, in some ways, account of you. But this is my problem with the judgment about ChatGPT and AI in general. We just keep moving the goalposts. I don't want to so much discredit, but I do want to point out what gets me about that biography is the weird uncanniness of it. I didn't graduate for the BA from the New School of Social Research, but I did go to Hampshire College. A high school guidance counselor would give the same student pamphlets for both. They're in the same category of schools. I didn't go to Stony Brook. I went to Binghamton. Those are the two philosophy programs in the State University of New York. Like They're uncanny because it's like my doppelganger's bio. Right. It's like <laughs> it could have been me. In fact, I almost if, – if they offered me more money, I would have gone to the new school for undergrad. But again, in a real human conversation, those are normal mistakes, like what you would consider a real human would make, right? If somebody went to any of the schools on the Philadelphia mainline, I would probably be like, oh, they went to Villanova. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not sure why we're so bothered by this mistake. It's precisely because it seems like a human mistake. Right. That's what makes it kind of uncanny. Yeah. Is yeah. that is it's the kind of mistake a human being would make where New School, Hampshire, they're kind of the same. You know, that's yeah. the thing that is uncanny about it. I don't have a position one way or the other on what counts as intelligence and what doesn't count as intelligence. One of the reasons why I would say that I'm not worried about this, but I also don't think it's as big a deal as other people do is because if Jason were to ask me, you know, if I introduced him and I said, and Jason went to the new school for social research and he's like, well, Rick, actually I went to Hampshire. 
I would say, oh, I knew you went to one of those hippie liberal arts uh, East Coast universities. Yeah, right, right. But if I asked ChatGPT, why did you say that Jason went to the new school? ChatGPT doesn't know. Mm-hmm. There is a difference there. Secondly, like if I can just do a simple Google yeah, wait, search. Wait, hold on, hold on. Is there a difference there? Like, if I asked you, why didn't you know that Jason went to whatever school he went to? Would you know? Well, you would say they were basically the same. I confuse them. Right? Right. But so here's the problem is that I'm human and I, well, I should have had access to that information, i.e. I should have Googled it because it would be easily discoverable had I Googled it. And at the very least, I'm expecting ChatGBT to like just Google some shit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that that might be the heart of our disagreement. And I've said this before on our podcast. AI models have exactly zero investment in truth. Right. Period. Yeah, for sure. If we're nice. depending on them to provide us the truth, we've just fundamentally misunderstood what they do. But what I'm saying is that when ChatGPT makes the mistake, if I were to ask it, why did you make this mistake? It won't come back to me and say, well, look, I found it over here or this person said this. But I would come back and say, oh, I knew you went to one of those hippie liberal arts colleges on the East Coast. I just picked the wrong one. And so I I'm not I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, I haven't tried this like so I haven't tried this experiment with ChatGPT, but I'm not sure that if you ask ChatGPT, actually, you know, like Jason went to this college, which is very similar to the college that you gave me. Why did you make that mistake? I'm not sure that it couldn't tell you why it made that mistake. So I actually did an experiment of that order. (laughs) And here with Jason, I'm like both impressed and then not impressed at all. So I asked ChatGPT to write a short essay that argues that Rene Descartes is not a dualist. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I'm teaching Descartes. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Jason, Um, Jason, this is our moment to step out and have a cigarette. (laughs) So I'll skip the introductory paragraph, which is like better really than any run-of-the-mill undergraduate introductory paragraph. But then here comes the first argument, which I think is really impressive. Quoting now ChatGPT. One of the main reasons why Descartes is not a dualist is that he does not believe that the mind and the body are fundamentally different entities. Instead, he argues that the mind and the body are closely interconnected and that they both play a crucial role in our perceptions, emotions, and actions. For example, Descartes argues that the mind and the body both contribute to the process of sensation, with the body providing the sense organ and the mind providing the perception. So this is all very smart, right? And so I asked ChatGPT after this, you said that Descartes doesn't believe that the mind and the body are fundamentally different entities, but then you say that they are closely connected. What's the difference between being different entities and being closely connected? It then gave me a bunch of stuff about connections and physics and other things that had nothing to do with any of this and didn't explain the argument. And I've seen other people reporting that when you ask, how did you find this information or how do you know this, ChatGPT isn't even aware of that. 
And so I think there is a difference in presenting what I found by searching the web and maybe even reorganizing that in a different way and then being able to present to you where I went, why I did it, what I was thinking, and so on. I mean, sorry, Rick, but if you ask me or Jason, what is the difference between being closely connected and being different entities? As philosophers, there's a certain kind of expectation of the answer that we would give. But like just people using natural language. If you were just in the dairy aisle of the grocery store and you asked somebody, you know, like, what is the difference between being closely connected and being different entities? I don't know that you could expect a regular natural language explanation any more complex than what GPT gave you. I agree with you 100%, but I wouldn't expect that person in the grocery store to have first said Descartes is not a dualist because he does not believe that the mind and the body are fundamentally different different. And that seems to me a benefit of GPT. Okay. Now, if a student wrote mm -hmm. that and I said, I don't understand what you mean by this. Could you explain it? And they said, no, I can't explain it. Then I would say, I think you got this idea from somewhere else. Do you remember where you got this idea? Because if you can't explain it, I don't know how it made its way into your essay. Yeah. And now we've gotten to the issue of cheating. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So I feel like we left off at the end of that last segment with a kind of capture of the fundamental mistrust of AI, which for those of us on this side of the classroom, professors, ends up being a fundamental worry about cheating. So what, you guys, do you worry about, about cheating with ChatGPT? Well, for me, and to a large extent, this has much less to do with ChatGPT and goes back to our discussion that we had in a previous season about cheating and plagiarism in general. And I think you, Lee, and Charles and I all agreed that we're not really policing cheating and we're not so concerned about it. And so for me, this is just a specific technology of cheating, and I'm not concerned because the technology is different. But I do know a number of my colleagues are really freaked out about this. Yeah, And yeah. one of my responses to their being freaked out is... If ChatGPT can do something you're asking your students to do, then maybe you should reconsider why you're asking your students to do something that a machine could do mm. and maybe rethink the pedagogical purpose of the kinds of assignments you're giving them rather than worry about them plagiarizing from ChatGPT. Mm. What about you, Jason? 
I mean, I think, first of all, that the plagiarism question comes downstream at so many other issues that it almost seems like missing the point in the sense that it comes downstream from the way students are looking at their work and what they're doing in the classroom and the way that we are using essays, uh, writing as a way to evaluate not what are they thinking about, how are they progressing, but like, do they know, have they been paying attention and all that sort of thing that it almost seems like I would much rather talk about how we've gotten to the point where turning in a fabricated essay is both something a student would want to do and is something that a faculty member would be concerned with. But having said that, I will say that I do think that going back to the – like we would never want a student to write something that a machine could write. One of my major concerns about ChatGPT in general, not so much cheating, but the fear that for anyone who – wants to be able to write or wants to be able to even have a better sense of what they're thinking. And there are a lot of ways to get better at what you're thinking. You can have conversations, you can do other sorts of things, but writing is one way to do it. And I feel like you have to write a lot to write anything that's worthwhile. And my fear is that ChatGPT is going to make writing just less pervasive and it's going to lead to worse Writing. I mean, I do think that, as Rick was saying, in some sense, like, I think ChatGPT is going to be used most often in places where the writing really doesn't matter that much. It's going to generate a lot of bad clickbaity kind of articles, but we're already inundated with such bad writing to begin with or kind of thoughtless mechanical writing. But I do think that you have to write a lot to write well, and it's going to undermine that. And I also think to some extent, you know, I, I mentioned the Ted Chang piece earlier. And I got down to the end of that piece, and it said something about how Ted Chang was a freelance technical writer. Now, I thought that was very strange because Ted Chang has written several successful collections of short stories, one of which has been adapted into a major film. I feel like, Ted, you got to talk to your agent. You should be getting more for this. (laughs) You should quit your day job. But the other thing I thought when I read that at the end of the piece is, yeah, for a long time, And we're kind of in the business of this too, that writing was a skill necessary to so many people made possible some of those people who get jobs writing technical stuff to write science fiction on the side. And I feel like my biggest fear about ChatGPT is not plagiarism, is that it's going to lead to the replacement of automated writing and other forms of writing, make that writing kind of worse, and future Ted Changs of the world who could become science fiction authors by being technical authors first, writing you know guidebooks and whatever else, are going to be out of work or they're going to do much less interesting work, which is going to be kind of proofreading generated content. So mm-hmm. I'm more concerned about what it's doing to writing in general than plagiarism. Lee, what about you? You worried about cheating with chat GPT? Oh my God, you guys have just like opened up so many things that I want to talk about, but like I'm really trying to organize these in my mind. But if I could just go back to the cheating thing first, as I said before on this podcast, my general attitude towards cheating is that cheating hurts the cheater. I don't stay up at night if students cheat. I don't stay up at night if students cheat and get away with cheating, right? Like we are unfortunately in a institution that is designed to reward people who find ways to game the system, right? That's going to happen and technologies are only going to encourage new ways to game the system. 
I will say that with respect to ChatGPT, that if I were to, for example, have a single semester of students, so I have roughly 100 students every semester, if 20% of them used ChatGPT to generate essay responses to prompts that I put in my class, Maybe I could subsequently ban all students from using ChatGPT. Maybe I could ban all students from using Google or JSTOR or like, you know, pick anything else. But in doing so, I would be robbing 80% of my students from a absolutely fascinating and really productive and generative technology that they could be using to learn more, like to read more, to write more, to think more, and to be more, as I say in my classes. I will say to Jason's point, I 100% agree with Jason that the only way to be a better writer is to write more. The only way to be a better reader is to read more. The only way to be a better thinker is to think more in consort with people who read more and write more and think seriously. So that hasn't changed because of ChatGPT. And I just feel like as a higher education instructor, my job is just to remind, reinforce, whatever that that is the case. I did not get into this profession to be a policewoman. I got into this profession because I love to teach and I love to learn and I love to participate in communities of reading, thinking, writing, mm. and learning. My job is to make people better thinkers and readers and writers. So yeah, like I don't actually understand the higher education panic about ChatGPT. And I want to go back to two points that you made, Lee, because one, I really agree with. And I, I think that, you know, when I put in this prompt about Descartes and being a dualist, I could see that one way in which this could be an incredibly useful tool is to help students with what one might call the blank page syndrome. Right. Because yeah. an awful lot of our students, they have a lot of anxiety about writing. And to go from a blank page to the first word or the first sentence or whatever, it seems many times for many writers to be like an abyss that's impossible to cross. And I could go to ChatGPT and say, okay, give me some ideas. Let's spitball this. And okay, now I got somewhere to go. And, and so as such, it's, I think, a really interesting tool. I will say that all of the prompts that I gave ChatGPT that asked to write a short essay, I thought they were poorly written in the sense that they didn't have what I would call style, and they had some things that I would talk with students about in terms of writing. They tend to be incredibly repetitious, you know, so they repeat parts of the prompt or various versions of the prompt throughout and, and so on. And if a student turns in something like that and I make all of these comments and I don't realize it's from ChatGPT, and if I give it back to them, if they read my comments on that, they're going to learn something about writing. I guess I want to push back a little bit about this idea that ChatGPT could be a starting place for writing. Because what it's going to produce and what I've seen, I've given it some of my prompts too, and it gives a very... Not bad, but not engaging or interesting summation of some philosophical arguments that seems to be what I would consider to be a kind of consensus point. You know, certain things that everyone would say about Marx, Spinoza, it's Hannah Arendt I asked about too, etc. And I'm not sure if 
one wants to start with that. Maybe for many people, the place to begin might be their own idiosyncratic take on the philosopher in question. I have a colleague, and technically my boss because she's the dean right now, Lisa Walker, who mm. asked the question like this, you know, could chat GPT generate queer theory if queer theory didn't already exist? And I think her point is that queer theory – in her understanding of it, comes from a very oblique reading of psychoanalysis of certain literary figures as well, and reads them in a way that is not what you would find if you asked the most predictable formulation of sentences around cyclonic theories of desire, drive, and so on, and that it exists in its idiosyncrasies and not in its consensus tendencies. And I think to me, that's one of my other fears about ChatGPT is not so much students will plagiarize it, but students will use it as an authority and the authority will be the authority of the most predictable formulation of things. Well, ChatGPT says this. I'm like, yeah, but ChatGPT isn't right. The rightness will be a kind of mechanized – like almost because all this – fears people have now about bias in the classroom and so on, that chat GPT will seem unbiased. Though apparently, side note, apparently there are already concerns from the right that it is biased. Uh, which of course, it goes back to the old Stephen Colbert joke, right? Oh. Reality has a, a liberal <laughs> bias, but... <laughs> Wait, chat GPT is a groomer? Is that what they're saying? Uh, apparently chat GPT, they asked it about you know, drag story hours and it had no issue with drag story hours. So it must be biased. Yes. Hmm. I mean, if I could just speak to this point, Jason is rightly pointing out, which is like, if you just use ChatGPT as a tool and assume that it has no biases built into it, it's just an arbiter of truth, then of course that's going to be a problem. And I try to remind my students all the time, like, AI does not give one shit about what is true or what is not true, right? right? Like, <laughs> all words are the same. All sentences matter to ChatGPT. But I do think that that's still not a reason to think that there are generative possibilities embedded in ChatGPT that are useful to all of us. And not just, you know, students, like... Me. I, for example, recently typed into ChatGPT. I have to teach an eight-week course on the philosophy of technology, write a syllabus for me with topics for every week and readings that go along with it. And it did. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> obviously, I'm not just going to copy what it gave me. Are you, though? Shh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like, obviously, I'm not just going to copy that, right? Because, you know, among other things, it gave me made up sources. Oh. It gave me made up article readings. Wow. But the point is, is that like, it did, however, give me basically an outline for like thinking about what I already wanted to do. I don't think that that's a terrible shortcut for a lot of us who are actually serious thinkers and serious readers and writers, you know, to say, you know what, like, I've got this idea. I don't know really how to kind of put it together. Here's the barf version of my idea. Organize it for me. And then, of course, you just take that really rough outline and be like, okay, now I have something to work with. So I'm just not convinced that this panic about GPT is really warranted, you know? I mean, it just seems like to me, this is, again, 
As I said before, I would never ban 20% of my students from using what I think would be useful to 80% of my students. And again, to guess that 20% of your students in any given course are cheating is already an overestimation, right? Like, so why would you prevent the overwhelming majority of your students from access to a technology that is, in my view, like really helpful? for improving reading, writing, thinking, and learning. So Jason's point about idiosyncrasy makes me reconsider my enthusiasm for ChatGPT as a useful tool. And one of the things I started thinking about in relation to that was when I was in graduate school, I was for a little while a research assistant to Agnes Heller, who was originally Hungarian, and English, I think, was probably her third language. So I'm guessing German was her second and French probably her third language. And and so she spoke an incredibly idiosyncratic English, and she wrote in a very idiosyncratic English, and she would give me her work to edit, and I had to make a decision about, am I going to edit this so that it sounds like mm-hmm. regular English, but that would be to take the Heller out of Heller. Mm-hmm. And that part of what made her thought tick was idiosyncrasies of her writing. I also have to say that in that time when I was her research assistant, I loved that anytime I typed in Heller, it wanted to correct it to hellbent. <laughs> and if anyone knows Agnes Heller, they would know that she was hellbent. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really taken by this idiosyncrasy issue. And that brings me to another point. Recently in The Atlantic, There was an essay by Matthew Kirschenbaum, and his main worry about ChatGPT goes along again with something Jason was pointing out. Namely, he's afraid that it's going to bring on the textpocalypse. In that, Mm. ChatGPT or these large language models and the AI models that use these large data sets and so on, they're going to start generating text that then is going to be new data for training that are then going to generate more text. And pretty soon, first of all, there's going to be way too much text. And secondly, they're going to overtake the ability of the idiosyncratic writers to have a big voice within the training models. If I could just interrupt here, like one thing I want to say, Rick, is that in a previous episode, you said that originality should not, you don't think, necessarily be a philosophical virtue. Can I just distinguish between originality and idiosyncrasy? I don't think those are necessarily the same. Well, I mean, okay, maybe that's another conversation to have. But if I could just like, for the moment, conflate them, right? Like, I do think that one of the panics on our side of the classroom about GPT-3 is that we're going to get things that are not quote-unquote original. And here's where I'm definitely going to piss off all of our listeners, but (laughs) I'm just going to say this. I think, though, as people invested in higher education, that we really have to think about the fact that the model of knowledge production, the knowledge economy on which higher education is built, is built on this idea of, quote-unquote, original thinkers having, quote-unquote, original thoughts. And so everything about how expertise gets produced after that 
is about a certain model of attribution and citation, which is about like quoting the original thinkers who had the original thoughts and therefore maintaining a kind of legitimacy of whatever it is that you're saying. So, you know, like sometimes I think about my students, like, you know, if they're writing an essay on Descartes, just to borrow from Rick's class, <laughs> if my students are writing an essay on Descartes, it should be no wonder to me that they're like, why do I have to cite Descartes? And not all the people he was writing letters to, not the Catholic Church, not the whole of the Middle Ages. You know, I mean, like even the idea of original thinkers and original thoughts that undergird this model of citation and attribution that undergirds the university as an institution is something that we really need to think about. I mean, the fact is, is like, if there's one thing that the internet taught us it's that that's not how the knowledge economy works. That knowledge production and knowledge generation never is singular. It's never attached to an individual. And I mean, you know, like, is it any surprise to any of us that our students don't give a shit if they copied something from Wikipedia or if they copied something from the original source? And honestly, like, should we give a shit? Like, you know, I mean... I mean, like, I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm going all the way off the, the bridge here, you know. But, I mean, I'm, I'm seriously asking you guys. Seriously. Well, I mean, I take your point about knowledge production in terms of the overemphasis on a kind of originality. But I think that the way in which, say, for example, like, you know, I found myself often drawn towards intellectual movements where there is a kind of, like, collective, you know, the sort of neo-Spinoza sort of stuff. There are all these people and they're all kind of, like, vibing off of each other, like, in is a collective project in some sense, a sort of materialist reading of Spinoza. But it's collective in the sense that these people are writing papers to each other, responding to each other. That's very different than the collectivity that is generated by an algorithm sorting through the most predictable thing to say. It's a very different way of arriving at a kind of collective production of knowledge than the way in which chat GPT is arriving at something. I mean, I think you're right in the sense we maybe overprivilege a certain kind of originality, but I feel like I don't want to confuse the way in which human beings collaborate and build off of each other's analyses with what this thing seems to be doing, because the collaboration between human beings is one in which idiosyncrasy is integral to that collaboration, and I feel like idiosyncrasy for a machine is just an outlier variable mm. in my way of understanding it. I 100% agree with you about that. And just as a proposition, I just want to ask you, like, isn't it the case, though, that what ChatGPT is introducing into higher education is a reason to question what I think is a deeply problematic structure of attribution and citation? Maybe my second question would be, like, what positive case could you give for our current structure of attribution and citation that would make that structure better than what we get from ChatGPT? So I would say that one of the reasons why higher education has the kind of model it does is not because we prize originality, 
but rather because we recognize that our knowledge actually does require the works of others, and that because we're using the works of others, we should give them credit. Now, I think that this is a fairly novel thing, right? And I, I think that novelists, for example, who are influenced by other novelists are obviously not citing those other novelists. And I suppose if you talked with them, they might say, oh, yeah, I was really influenced by Mark Twain or whatever. But they're not citing them in the same way that we do. And I also think that part of what for me could lead to an insight that I didn't know I had or I didn't know it was an insight is by looking at the works of other people that have already written about the same thing I'm writing about or the same philosopher I'm writing about. And I realize, wait, I don't agree with that, but everyone else does. And so there is a kind of prizing of originality, but I don't think that that's the main driver behind our citational practice. The second point I wanted to make very quickly about what I thought Jason was saying earlier and then again, you know, just now, was that what goes on in a model that is statistically analyzing data that it's trained on and on that st basis of the statistical analysis predicting what's most likely to come next, this is a way of producing text or whatever other outcome can be produced that is very much like the way in which in the series community, the mascot, the human, <laughs> was produced. It was like you take away every idiosyncrasy of every single person, and what you come up with then is just the blandest, blankest, almost nothing. And I, I agree with Jason that that's a problem, and it would become more of a problem if Kirschenbaum is right, and this leads to a textpocalypse. Yeah, I guess I would just say in response that I don't think that the model of academic citation and attribution is at all concerned, really, with originality. Right. It's concerned with authority. So what gets cited by being cited constructs authority, constructs what is true. And so I guess like in that sense, I'm not sure that honestly, like chat GPT is any different than just a regular college sophomore, you know, like they're just like, can I find something that affirms the point that I'm trying to make and like serves as an authority? And it doesn't matter if they're original or you know, like whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, I guess like I'm just trying to get mm -hmm. us to think about the model of the university as dependent upon this very particular model of citation and attribution, which in its operation establishes truth, establishes authority and any objection that we might have to some gaming of that system weirdly is an objection that is like based on that very system is does that make sense it does but i'm very concerned with chat gpt becoming an authority precisely because of the way in which it's kind of machinic indifference to idiosyncrasy will somehow seem as pure more correct right filtering mm -hmm. out of biases and so yeah. forth that you know that one could imagine a student or even like one could imagine like 
a horrible future in which chat GPT becomes reviewer number two. Um, and, and, <laughs> yeah, is, yeah, is yeah. You, and is, has all the more authority because it has filtered out the human idiosyncratic aspects. And, but, but wouldn't yeah, so. the, wouldn't the pedagogical defense against that be, Hey, you know, like, don't just believe everything you read, which is, by the way, the pedagogical defense we have against fucking everything, you know, like when you read something about experts, we're still like, you know what? Like, don't just believe every article you read on its face, you know? I mean, so I'm, I'm not sure that this is a real threat. Like, it just seems to be, in my view, I mean, again, we don't all have to agree on this, but in my view, it just seems to me to highlight a problem with our current university system of the knowledge economy mm -hmm. that this current panic weirdly seems to highlight, but nobody's seeing what it's highlighting. Well, I don't know what my role is in the knowledge economy, but I'll tell you it's not paying me very well at all. Same. <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs> Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. So I'm going to have my uh, chat GPT figure out a way to call an Uber for us um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, have the machine guide us home. Rick, do you have any last words you want to say to our listeners? I do. And I, and this, let me tell you, is coming from me, Rick Lee, from my very heart and not from the cold electrons of the machine. <laughs> and but, how would you know if it was or not? <laughs> well, I, I could sing it as Julia Kristeva. Um, <laughs> <laughs> please do. Please do. Uh, That's the only way I will know that it came from. We you. really want to thank all of our patrons for helping us bear the costs of these machines. They live somewhere and we need to pay rent on them and we need to pay for the bits. And so thank you very much to our patrons for helping us out with that. And for those of you who aren't patrons, we encourage you just go to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. We have many levels there that you could subscribe to that will fit in with whatever you're comfortable contributing. And really any little bit helps. And if even our lowest level is something you can't swing financially right now, then on whatever pod service you use, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, go ahead and give us a review and let other people know that you found us and that you like us. That also helps us out a lot. So thank you to our patrons. And if you're not one, think about it. Yeah. And if I could just like insert another comment from ChatGPT itself, you should not be worried about ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> so That's weirdly also my comment. <laughs> 
with those reassuring words, I'll say bye. Good night. Thanks, guys. Thank you.